getting ready to have a live session. This Billy Holiday. So I don't play jazz. I'm not a swinger. My good friend Jason Crane. Now it's jazz. Now it's jazz. Now it's now it's now it's jazz. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is a jazz interview podcast. It's more than just the music. It's stories of the people who play and write and love jazz. It's also more than a podcast. When you visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com, you'll find interviews, live jazz news, and links to other jazz sites. On this episode of the Jazz Session, my guest is John Abercrombie. He's got a new record on ECM called The Third Quartet. The album comes out on April 3rd, but because you listen to the jazz session, you can hear it first. Let's open the show with the tune that opens the record, Banshee. My guest is John Abercrombie. He and his quartet have a new album on ECM called The Third Quartet. It features Mark Feldman on violin, Joey Barron on the drums, Mark Johnson on the bass, and John Abercrombie on the guitar. John, thanks a lot uh, for being here. And I wanted to start off by kind of reading back to you something you'd, you'd said a couple of years ago, which was that you felt as musicians get older, they get more traditional. But this quartet seems to be kind of arguing against that that point of view. You seem to be uh, branching out into a some freer territory. Obviously, Gateway was similar but uh, uh i'd just like to hear your thoughts on that yeah it's well it's it's yeah it is kind of like a, a reverse of what i said you know but i i feel like in some ways i am becoming more traditional in terms of how i practice and how i think about music but this particular band was put together i think before i actually reached that decision you know and it was put together to ex- experiment and try to to branch out and try different things and, and it was mostly my relationship with mark feldman the violinist who played on a, a CD of mine, uh, oh, about five years ago, or even more, six years ago, called Open Land, which was uh, a group project that included uh, my trio with Adam Nussbaum and Dan Wall, and it had special guests like Mark Feldman, Joe Lovano, and Kenny Wheeler. And it was through that relationship, you know, with, with those guys, you know, that I kind of got tight with Mark Feldman and decided to start this current quartet, which, uh, as you say, is, is definitely uh, sort of breaking boundaries and it's not traditional at all you know uh, so it's it's kind of interesting but in some ways i am going back 
to traditional playing in my thinking, but this band is not one of those. <laughs> what was it about Mark Feldman that really caught your ear when he was on Open Land? Well, I think even before Open Land, I, I knew Mark from a, yeah, um, when he was a student, believe it or not, at a place called Banff Center for the Arts up in uh, Western Canada. And he came in as a, a student, and I, he wound up in some of my ensembles and my classes. And so I, I was immediately taken with the sound of the violin, because I've always liked that sound, even from the, you know, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli days up through uh, Jerry Goodman and Mahavishnu. And I just, you know, we got together and started to play a little bit at, at the school and reconnected later when he moved to New York. I just always wanted to start a band with him. I always wanted to do something with the violin. And I think it was more from a sound perspective than it was from a conceptual idea of, of what to play. It was just like, I like that sound. And uh, I think that was the, the attraction, was just the sound of the violin and the guitar together. You two seem to really phrase together well, like you've been playing together for, for decades. It sounds like it must have been uh, quite a musical match for things to come together as quickly as they have really over the course of a, you know, just a few records and obviously some, some live gigs. Yeah, I think, I think it happened fairly quickly. I mean, just the, the, the idea of playing together. And I think where, where Mark really influences me is he, he's such a uh, classically trained violinist as opposed to somebody like Jerry Goodman who played with, you know, the Mahavishnu who was more, oh, I don't know what you would call him, I guess sort of country, rock and roll, Indian violinist, you know. I mean, Mark is, a, is definitely more classically trained, in, in really in the tradition, and I think when he improvises in, a, improvises in a classical manner, you know, I think that's what influenced me for this band a lot, was just having Mark improvise on my compositions and also had, leaving a lot of room for kind of free improvisation, which tends to go more in a chamber direction, you know, and I, I enjoy that very much, and more than I do trying to play free jazz, as I guess, whatever that is, you know, playing uh, more abstract with the violin, and this ensemble with just violin, guitar, bass, and drums gives it a more, a chamber atmosphere, you know, and I, I think my, my style suits that more, you know, and Mark's influenced me a, a lot in trying to improvise in that manner, you know as opposed to, you know, what I'd say, free jazz, which is, I, I hear that as different somehow. When you decided to put this band together, how did you choose Mark and Joey, Mark uh, Johnson and Joey Barron to round out the quartet? Well, Mark was, Mark Johnson was, was my first choice just because I love to play with him, even from years ago when I played with Peter Erskine and him, we had a trio. So I think that was very self-explanatory for me. I wanted to play again with Mark. The, Joey Barron actually came about Interestingly enough, by default, the original drummer planned for this recording was Billy Hart. And Billy called me, I think, about two weeks before the record date and said no, he was going to California to play with Pat Martino and he couldn't make the session. So all of a sudden I was confronted with the idea of do I cancel a session or do I, do I try to find someone else or what do I do? And I uh, just got a list of drummers from my, my friend Adam Nussbaum and Adam sent me his uh, email list of drummers, and the fir one of the first ones that appeared was Joey Barron. And Joey and I had played together uh, years ago, and I just thought this could be this could be really a good idea because I know what Joey's been doing recently, you know, playing more with John Zorn and more avant-garde kind of things. Plus, I also knew that Joey had the ability to play just about anything that was under his fingers, you know, his hands. So I called him up, and he was home, and we, uh, we had this long conversation, which mostly didn't have to do with music at all. 
had to do with our personal lives and what had been going on. And then at the end of this, end of the conversation, he said, "Oh yeah, I can make the record date if you want." You know, so I thought about it and I said, "I think this would be a really good idea." And I hadn't played with Joey for years, but I just kind of did it. You know, I said, "Okay, let's do it." It worked out to be even better than I imagined. You know, I mean, I think he's just perfect for a lot of bands, but I think especially with this band, he's. I can't think of anyone else that can do what he does, you know. I'm wondering um, how all the free playing that you've done has kind of influenced you as a as a writer. How much of the music on this record is, is through composed? How much of it is thematic sketches that this flesh out in the studio? The one that's about to come out is actually more. Is I guess it's a little more composed than the previous two. Cat and Mouse had a lot of uh, left a lot of room for free improvisation, and the second record had some of that. And also, I wrote tunes that were sort of setups, or as we would call, or just like sketches to allow people to improvise more, as opposed to actually traditional songs. But this most current record that's coming out is a little more. I wouldn't say it's traditional by any means, but it's more song-oriented. And there's a couple of tunes on it that are open and sort of free. But for the most part, it's very uh, lyrical, I think, and very uh, song-oriented. So it's, the band seems to actually be getting more traditional as it goes along. But traditional in, in my sense of traditional, not bebop traditional or jazz traditional, just playing more of my compositions and c- tunes that involve chord changes and what have you, as opposed to being wide open. What's the influence of Manfred Eicher on this recording process? Well, in the past, on the first two records, Cat and Mouse and uh, Class Trip, Manfred was the producer. He was present during the recording and the mixing and everything. This current record, he was not there for the uh, recording of it. He did show up for the mixing, which happened a a good deal later, maybe a, almost a year after the thing had been recorded, or six months at least. His influence as a producer is, is just uh, invaluable because he's, he's able to like hear things that you, know, you as a musician or I as a musician can't hear, you know, uh, which is hard to describe. It's just more like ways to approach compositions, you know, feelings, tempos, that kind of thing. On the current CD, he wasn't involved in that at all. He was only involved in the, in the actual mixing. And we mixed the record in about three hours because it was so well recorded to begin with that we didn't, he didn't really have to do anything except listen to the takes and just kind of run them and sort of you know, change levels and add a little bit of his famous reverb. You know? But he's, he's great because he also uh, he hears, uh, he hears a, sort of, a certain space around the music that I think other producers wouldn't hear. He hears a certain openness and a sort of as he would in his words he calls it a panorama and i think that's a good word for it he just sort of hears this overall sound to, to make it sound like we're playing in a in the same space as opposed to playing in these separate little cubicles you know and then everything is just kind of thrown together so the music always sounds very open and 
almost like we recorded in the same in the same room with one microphone in a way. Has he pointed things out to you in the studio, or uh, you know, mentioned particular takes that that he really liked or found something special in that maybe you hadn't heard the same thing in that you were surprised by? Oh yeah, all the time. I mean, he's on one of the on one of the recordings. I forget which one it was. I think it was the first recording. I think it was Cat and Mouse. We had done two takes of one tune, and I remember on the second take I played a lot of notes. You know, I just was playing just streams of notes. And at the end of the take, Manfred asked me, he said, well, John, how come you played so many notes? And I said, because I can, you know. I said, because, you know, it felt good. And he said, well, you should come in and listen to these two takes, because he preferred the first take where I didn't play so much. And he was absolutely right. I mean, the first take was just more musical. And I think that's, that's his real talent as a producer is being able to hear how the music is taking shape and 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 what's really good for the whole the whole picture as opposed to an individual player like you may play a what you think is a fantastic solo but in retrospect sometimes you listen to it and it's it just sounds like a lot of notes and so i think that's that's where he kind of surprises me you know how is this music different when it's played live it's not especially different. I think these songs tend to go on longer, and I think that's the nature of the of the studio. I think when you're in the studio, I think you, uh, I edit myself a little more. I play shorter. I try to go for the uh, the overall picture. And when you play live, I think the tendency is to, uh, as we say in jazz, stretch out a bit more. You know, and kind of play longer and be a little more uh, self indulgent. You know. You mentioned finding yourself kind of coming back to rely uh, more on melodic lines, and I wonder if it's uh, a reliance on that and the kind of improvisation that causes that caused you to pick an Ornette Coleman tune as one of the only two non-originals. I think the reason I chose that tune was because I, I wanted something with that, that feeling on the record, and I like to play that way, but I hadn't written anything that uh, kind of set that up, as we say. I call them setups. You know, I hadn't written anything that was sort of a, an open-ended piece. They were all compositions, and I said, well, I really want something with that feeling on it. And so I, uh, I actually was going to record another tune of Ornette's, which was called Ramblin', and I went on a, a website and I found the music to, to Ramblin, but underneath Ramblin was this uh, this other Ornette tune called Round Trip, which I had never played, and I kind of looked through it, and I thought this would, this would be even better, you know, because it's simpler, it's more to the point, and it just sets things up so well that I just chose that tune, and we recorded it, I think, in one take, you know. Is most of the album, was it recorded in one take? I think more or less. I mean, I think that on this on this current record, there was the album. There were some edits that we did with, like, not overdubbing of solos particularly, but overdubbing of uh, melodies. And if we had an introduction that we liked better than one another introduction, we might have tacked that on to the, another take. So we did some editing, but uh, that was about it. You know, as far as the takes go, I don't really remember whether they were first. Usually, they're first or second takes. It's very rare that you go to the third or fourth take because by then you kind of wear the, t- the composition out, you know. Is editing a, a common feature in your music over the years, or do you tend to be a let's just get it down live and go with uh, it? I'm pretty much a get it down live and, and go with it guy, but uh, 
in this particular uh, recording, uh, there, were, there were just a couple of intros, uh, especially where Mark Feldman and I played together. And then the band would come in and join us. You know, that there was a couple of intros that were just better. You know, when we heard them back, they were just, like, much better than the one that was on the original take. And, of course, there was space enough to leave, you know, space between the intro and, and, and the, the band joining in, you know, the, as a full composition, that we were able to, like, make the edit very smoothly. It was no problem. And I think that's, that's okay. I mean, I believe in some of that, some editing and a little overdubbing here and there. But generally, I'm a, I believe in just trying to get the music down like it sounds, because that's always the best, you know. When you first got together with Jack DeJanette and Dave Holland, just to, to talk just for a minute about kind of mm-hmm. the, your intro into freer playing, I, I think I read somewhere that the three of you didn't even intend to record professionally what you were doing, that you just made a, a cassette of it and then it exactly, ended up Exactly. Exactly. No, we, I went up to Jack's house. So I remember one, one day, this was quite a few years ago, I mean, because it was going in back the 70s, a long way. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and we just got together in his basement and we with Jack and Dave and myself, and we played, and Jack had a cassette running, like he would normally do, you know, just to check things out, you know, and at the end of the, the day, he made me a copy of the cassette, and I had it with me, and I was riding in the car with Manfred Eicher, actually, on, a, on the way to a record date from uh, Munich, I think, to Stuttgart, and he said, well, what's new? And I said, well, I have this cassette, I just, you know, played something with Jack and Dave, and, you know, I put it in the car, you know, we listened, and he heard, like, five minutes, and he said, well, we should really record this. So it kind of was his idea spurred on by this this cassette that I had, you know, and uh, I'm glad he did, you know, because it, it became a, you know, really great band to play in, a very workable thing, and and it was my first foray into, like, sort of this, I guess what you call free playing, and when I first did it, when we made the first Gateway record, I mean, I was just sort of like a kid in a candy store, you know, I just went kind of crazy. I played everything I could think of, you know, and uh, I think as we got more as we played more and I became more mature and more aware of what we were doing, I was able to shape the music more so it didn't sound like it was just random free jazz, you know, but it had some sort of substance to it. And I think that kind of culminated in, in, the, in the third CD we did. We did a, a CD called um, Homecoming, which was our, our third one. We took a break for maybe about 10 years or eight years before we played again. And then we did the, another CD and, and did some gigs. And I think at that point, you know, I know I had reached a different, a different point in my playing. I was much more in control of what I did, and I was able to, uh, to play this kind of music with a lot more authority and also with a lot more, like I say, substance, so it wasn't just random. But my first jump into it was just like going crazy, you know, just enjoying the freedom of not having a, a chord progression or, or certain restrictions put on me. Were you literally walking into the studio, turning the tape on, and seeing what happened? Uh, no, we, we actually, I mean, we had compositions, but they were, the compositions were very, very open-ended. I mean, I remember Dave wrote most of the things for the first CD. They basically had melodies and bass lines, and then it was just everybody for themselves. You know, so it's, it's like, we didn't just roll the tape. No, we didn't do that. We, uh, but, but the compositions in this, themselves allowed for us to play very openly and freely, and we just did different takes of different tunes. And I think this, the second CD we did was a little more, a little more compositional, and for me, not as interesting. There was one called Gateway Two. It was Gateway Gateway, and then Gateway Two, and then the third one I thought was like a, a, a step up. It was like the first thing we recorded, but it was like much better because we, you know, we were all we had all grown up, you know, a lot more, you know, especially me. 
because those guys had been involved in this kind of music for quite a while. But I think when I got involved in it, it was for me it was brand new. So I, I, it took me it took me some time to really understand how to approach that music and, and make it sound like it was composed, kind of you know. On the new record, I'm curious whether there are some tunes that you brought into the studio that ended up completely differently than you'd expected once the other guys got their hands on them. I think they were pretty much the way I had had envisioned them, you know. And that's the nice thing about having a band that you you trust, you know, like when you trust the other players and you really kind of have them in mind when you're writing and ask for their input, then things pretty much turn out the way you would expect them. There were no thorough surprises on this CD. I think on the on the first CD, the first two, I think there were some surprises because the band brings in their own interpretation of these songs because they're just songs. They're not like, uh, I don't have them mapped out and codified and set up, you know, like this is how I want it to sound. So we just play through the tunes and then we then we talk, you know. And I, I say what I feel about the tune, you know, and other people have their, you know, interpretations of how they would like to approach the tune. And that's the way I like to do it. That's why I hire people that are better than me <laughs> and by now you know each other well enough that you can kind of imagine some of those conversations while you're composing as opposed to almost yeah. yeah and i just know from the way the guys play that you know how the tune will sound pretty much you know and and there were you know there's, there's been on occasion there's been a tune or two that i've had to like let go because they didn't work out you know on the first recording we we had a tune we wanted i wanted to play and it just sounded like completely out of place it didn't work so i'm you know i let it go i said we don't need this you know this is not this is not what we really want on this CD, you know. But yet we still played the tune live sometimes. What's coming up next for you? You're just about ready to head to Europe, is that right? The the quartet goes to Europe around March 20th or 19th. We're leaving for about a 10 or 11 day tour. And then we come back and we have a week off and then we're going to play uh some gigs around the states. We're going to play in Birdland in New York. We're going to play in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Boston, Washington and Philly. And then I'm off, and, you know, probably till the end of July when I may go out with another band, because the reality is, you know, you have to uh, work with many different people to just keep things consistent and make a living, you know, so I can't really rely on, I wish I could rely more on my own groups, but, you know, it's just not possible. So I, I do many different things, you know. What keeps you coming back? What is it that still excites you about the music? I thought about that today because I knew you'd be calling me. I mean, I just I think the thing for me about trying to play any kind of, this music or whatever I I do, you know, whether I'm involved with this band or uh, you know a, another project with different people, is just trying to become a better player. Period. You know, I think I think that's the, that's the thing that keeps pushing you is just pushing me anyway. Is just like, you know, I'm, I'm it's kind of like working th- a working through process. You know, like you just you know you have things you you've played in the past. I mean, I'm talking about as an improviser now as opposed to a composer. You know, you, you, you have things that you've played and you you keep playing them, but, you know, you try to make them fresh and, you know, obviously you don't want it to sound like it's a prepared solo, you know, like because I never do anything like that. So I'm, I think I'm just always trying to play better, you know, just trying to get it more focused and more exact. So I practice. It's kind of like, just it's very simple in a way. You know, you, you practice things and you try to play them and, Sometimes you can't remember what you've practiced. This is a normal uh, situation that happens with all musicians. You know, you practice stuff, and then you go on the gig, and you can't remember what it is you've practiced, so you can't really work it into your repertoire. But all the practicing eventually pays off, and you uh, it show things you've practiced show up usually at a later point. You know, 
maybe a year down the line, all of a sudden things you practice start to get into your playing. And I think that's the main, the main thrust of keep coming back is just trying to get better and better and try to understand what it is I'm doing with this music. You know? Can I ask you to say a few words about Michael Brecker? Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, Michael and I, uh, I mean, I knew Michael from about 19, I think, well, late 60s. I, I, I met both him and Randy when I was in, living in Boston. And I was playing, there used to be two clubs in Boston. One was called the Jazz Workshop, and the other was called Paul's Mall. These two clubs were connected. The Jazz Workshop was obviously a jazz venue, and the Paul's Mall was more like a supper club. And being a lo- local Berkeley uh, student, I was hired to play in the, this supper club for a, a mere pittance, you know, because that's what they did with student musicians in those days. And so I would play in this club, but I could walk through the back of this one club into the jazz workshop, and I could hear, you know, I'd, I'd hear Coltrane play, I'd hear Bill Evans, and one one time I heard uh, Mike and Randy playing with Horace Silver, and they had come next door and hear, to hear me, because they were just on a break, and they wandered into the club next door, and they heard me play, and they liked what they heard. So that's where I met them. So I, I actually know Mike, and Mike, I knew Michael from about 1966 or something. So that goes back quite a quite a number of years, and they they called me uh, when I was still living in Boston and asked me to come down and audition for a band called Dreams, which was a fusion band, kind of with a singer. So I moved to New York in the late 60s and started playing with them and developed a relationship with both Mike and Randy. And uh, But Mike was kind of just special, you know. I mean, I, I don't know what the right word for it is. He, uh, I mean, it's, it's beyond the, the technical aspect of what he could do on the saxophone, which was formidable and sort of beyond what anybody could have done, I think. It was just his feeling as a musician. I mean, he was a, he was a, a deep thinker. He was a really profound guy. He was an extremely nice person. And we got along really well. And uh, he played on a couple of my CDs in later years, uh, a CD called Night and another one called uh, Getting There. And we did a couple of tours with Mark Johnson and Peter Erskine and myself and Mike. It, it's funny, when you, when you know somebody for that long... It's almost like you don't think about them as a uh, this amazing musician. You just think of them as pers- this person you knew or you know who plays great. But I, I just always felt very comfortable with Mike as, as as a person and a player. And I think we he connected with me, and I just I miss him dearly. I, I you know I, I I don't know what to say. I think it was a tragedy, but I know he'd been suffering for years and. Uh, I think that's it, there's just no way around it. I mean, it's just hard to even put into words, you know, how you feel about somebody like that. You know, it's he was just a very good friend, you know. And besides being a great musician, he was just a wonderful person and a great friend. And I enjoyed making music with him tremendously. And uh, I will miss him and hope that I, you know, <laughs> wherever he is, that he's playing, you know, and having a good time. And if there is another place to go to, you know. This is something we don't know, but um, obviously it's just, you know, it's more personal for me with Mike than, than anything, just because I knew him. We were sort of kids. I think I met, I think he was couldn't have been more than about 19 when I met him, or 20, and I was probably around, I think Mike was 56, 57. I'm 62, so, you know, I'm close, I'm, I'm his brother's age, I'm Randy's age, and, uh, so, you know, he was basically just a little bit younger than me, and uh, 
I really loved playing with him and loved being with him, and he was just a tremendous guy. You know? That's an unreleased live performance by John Abercrombie, Michael Brecker, Mark Johnson, and Peter Erskine. It was recorded in 1986 for a European radio broadcast. Until next time, you've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. Please visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com, where you'll find interviews, jazz news, and links to other jazz sites. You'll also find links to subscribe to the show. If you can, please subscribe via iTunes. It's free, and it guarantees that you'll always have the most recent show right there on your computer or MP3 player whenever you want it. I also write interviews and reviews for AllAboutJazz.com, the world's largest jazz website, and I invite you to go there and find my things along with lots of other great jazz content. If you'd like to contact The Jazz Session, send an email to jason at thejazzsession.com, or call 585-643-5151. You can also join the mailing list, which you'll find at thejazzsession.com. And when you join, you'll get periodic updates about the guests who appear on this show, plus other news from the jazz world. The theme music for the show is by The Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Thanks very much for listening. Remember to support live jazz whenever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.